Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we assess how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by the global economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Rick Marshall and Megan Eastman join me to discuss the public shaming of Amazon by its employees due to the Amazon Web Services ties to oil and gas and federal agencies like ICE in the U.S., Then Umar Ashbak, our oil and gas lead, joins me to give a quick take on what it actually means for a web service company to have ties to oil and gas. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. On January 20th, Amazon employees for climate justice sent an internal email about Amazon threatening to fire a few people for violating the newly updated external communication policy by those employees speaking publicly about Amazon's impact on the climate crisis. The authors were concerned about the Amazon Web Services ties with oil and gas and various U.S. federal agencies. After the email was sent, more than 350 Amazon staffers, many of them part of Amazon's highly trained development and engineering teams, publicly called out the company for its climate policy, its work with federal agencies, and its attempts to stifle dissent. As a quick context on the Amazon Web Service, or AWS as it's called, AWS is a subsidiary of Amazon that provides on-demand cloud computing platforms and APIs. A good example of a system AWS provides to oil and gas companies is one that can help those companies predict where oil is in the rock that they are drilling for with a 95% confidence. And it's the third highest revenue generator for Amazon at 25 billion USD in 2018 and the second fastest growing segment for the company. As a stack card for Amazon, remember at MSCI ESG Research, we rank companies on their exposure to environmental, social, or governance risk factors on a scale from triple C to triple A, and Amazon is ranked a double B. But at the moment, this isn't just a story about Amazon or how AWS is tied to oil and gas. Umar is going to take us through that later because there are a number of tech companies that do have ties with oil and gas companies, including companies like Google. It's about something we are talking about in our 2020 ESG trends, Companies trying to convince society that they are now concerned with the entire stakeholder ecosystem. That includes shareholders, but it also includes labor groups, the environment, suppliers, customers. It's a story about stakeholder engagement and what happens when highly trained employees use their leverage to demand change at a company. Because this isn't the first time there has been employee dissent at Amazon, but it is a bit different when programmers get into the fray. Isn't that right, Megan? You know, employees are trying to find ways to influence the company. And, you know, I think this Amazon case is interesting because it's not the first time we're seeing Amazon employees trying to influence the company about climate change. Usually when employees organize, it's about working conditions. Sometimes we've started to see a little bit more recently. It's about social issues um, like the the Wayfair walkout that was about uh, U.S. immigration policy. And then 
to kind of tie it together with the discussions that we've had around our ESG trends to watch and stakeholder capitalism, I, I just think it's really interesting that we're getting basically one stakeholder, which would be workers kind of acting on behalf of another, which would be the environment and society more widely. And then you've had some of those same employees trying to act as shareholders because some of them do own stock to influence the same thing. So it's just, it's bringing together a lot of strands of things that we've been thinking about. Well, Rick, so Jeff Bezos signed the business roundtable pledge to um, better adhere to the wishes of stakeholders and not just shareholders. Amazon, I mean, Amazon Web Services is part of the World Economic Forum, but that basically means Amazon is part of the World Economic Forum because Amazon Web Services is on Amazon's 10K. So I don't know how they're separating those two things. But how how is this going to happen? You have conflicting issues now. Amazon Web Services is a, a massive growing segment for Amazon, as I said in the beginning. But then you have uh, employees saying, hey, hold on, we don't like what you're doing with this um, profitable center. And you have community saying, uh, in general, we don't like the climate changing and all the carbon emissions. So uh, Rick or Megan, how are you going to deal with these conflicting stakeholders? You know, the, ben- the benefit of having one shareholder was you just really had to listen to them and now you're kind of coming out here saying we're going to listen to everybody but now you have two warring parties the conclusion that we came to doing trends which we expressed in in our webinar uh, just a couple days ago was exactly this companies have raised expectations but the various stakeholders that they're trying to address here are not going to be placated by pledges alone. They have to take action. And here we are. What's the action? What's the outcome? How will investors respond? That's where we're at. Rick, I want to read what you wrote in the Trends paper. You said, quote, of all the stakeholders listed in the grand statements by these business roundtable, World Economic Forum uh, companies, only shareholders have formal mechanisms to hold companies directly to account. That doesn't mean the others are powerless, but the formal power they hold is unequal. But this seems like a pretty formal channel. You know, collective striking seems like quite the channel to disrupt a company to push them toward where they want to go. Let's not confuse formal channel with effective channel. This is clearly a potentially very effective channel, but it's very different from what shareholders enjoy, which is the legal right to... Uh, vote on specific issues before the company at the annual meeting every year. That That is a legally um, bound right that every investor has. <clears throat> that, that's very different from this, you know, creating this effective channel for change. Uh, they're completely different animals. One has legal standing, the other does not. One of the complexities here is that this is about oil and gas. And Oil and gas remains very much at the heart of our economy. Now, coal has been effectively marginalized, and we, we've seen some huge changes and shifts in access to capital in, in that industry, that, that portion of the energy in, industry. But oil and gas, while it's been impacted, is still right at the heart of this. And so that's not quite as easy a win as saying, you know, get out of coal. Um, stop doing business with oil and gas, I, that's not probably going to happen exactly the way employees would like for it to play out. Is there the potential for change? Absolutely. But I think it's going to be much slower and more incremental. And, and there's also a really interesting governance angle here that you, you may have missed. And that is that 
the Amazon board itself has at least two directors with ties past or present to large companies that are oil and gas um, suppliers, a tool and equipment company. Um, I wanted to say, you know, let's let's bring this back a little more explicitly to why it matters to investors. Because, you know, we've been circling around that and this whole idea of stakeholder capitalism and companies and CEOs pledging themselves to look after stakeholders, even without that formal mechanism. So kind of the most obvious thing maybe is that it creates expectations and then that may create reputational issues. But I also wanted to, to think of, about it from the angle of the stakeholders becoming emboldened or empowered, as we're seeing with employees, and what that can mean in terms of, uh, you know, another source of pressure on the company to behave or not behave in certain ways. And, you know, what would it mean for Amazon to decide to stop providing AWS to the oil and gas industry? They'd get overtaken by, it's a great point, because I think what it means, I'm going to take the cynical view here, and what it means for investors is these companies have introduced a risk that they can't deal with. They have set up a expectation that they have no actual formal ability to address. Google did this. And back in the day before uh, Google's web service, right. don't, don't be, be evil. evil. And you know how they did that? They said, we're not going to go into China. Because they tried that and the Chinese government was censoring Google's search results and employees complained internally. So they left. And Amazon said, oh, great, we're going to go into China. And Amazon's web service grew way more than Google. All of a sudden, Google was on its back foot, and they were like, okay, never mind. Look, we got to figure this out. And I want I bring that up because it's not like Amazon is the only web service group that has contracts with oil. Google has contracts with Aramco. It has contracts with Total, Chevron, uh, Schlumberger, which is a great name. So, Megan, you make a great point. It's like this, this has introduce this risk that they will not be able to deal with um by the way schlumberger is the company with which the amazon board has direct ties that has a current director of schlumberger on its board and it has a former director from the same firm so i mean that's I, just reflects the complexity here but, but you know what i'm going to take the opposite view i'm going to take the optimist view here and what i think is that if amazon will listen to its employees, if Jeff Bezos will listen to these people, these top, high-skilled, important employees at that company, if he will listen, and this board will begin to make changes, yes, they may suffer a short-term loss. They may get fall behind in this particular area in the short term, but in the long term, they will realize more value and become a stronger, more sustainable company. And that's the bottom line. That's what this is all about. I'm going to do a smooth transition here because this is not just about that, but it's also about how tech companies are teaming up with oil and gas companies. And that is why I have uh, Umar Ashfaq here because he is one of our lead analysts on the oil and gas sector. And Umar, we just had this broad discussion on stakeholder capitalism. And now I want to get a bit wonky to end this episode and talk about what it means for Amazon and Google to be teaming up with oil and gas companies. So could you give us a quick overview of what it even means to have a company that provides web services um, and other things with a company like Exxon? How do those two marry together? 
Thanks, Mike. So this is a really interesting area, um, and that's, that's it's piqued the, the interest of a lot of our research colleagues, and essentially it is the use of cloud computing within the oil and gas industry. So ostensibly these are two very different fields, and you don't really often connect uh, how oil and gas would be utilizing the services of Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud or, or any of these uh, various services. So on the very start, just to define how you're looking at cloud computing, and cloud computing is at the very basic level, the ability to store and analyze very large amounts of data. Now, oil and gas companies are sitting on massive troves of data from all of the all of the exploration activity that they've been doing over the past 40, 50 years. And it's all digitized, it's all there. This is seismic data, this is drilling data, and all of that data is there to be analyzed. And lately what we've seen is in the past year, we've seen Total, the French company, partner with Google Cloud. We've seen Anadarko, which is uh, uh, mostly active in the US, also enter into an agreement with uh, Google. And the plan is that Anadarko is going to be using artificial intelligence to analyze seismic data on geological features below the seabed to optimize drilling locations. And what it all comes down to is companies are looking for efficiency gains in a time when oil prices are low. And it's when things get tough that companies are looking for, for novel ways to use whatever they have, whatever edge, little edge they may have, to optimize existing assets as well as look for novel new ways to improve capital discipline. And this is, in a way, from a purely fundamental point of view, a way for a company to maximize and optimize their existing assets as well as the, info, as well as the information and the data that they have already. Well, help me out here. So it's better to use less resources when you're getting things. But let's say the thing you're getting is really carbon intensive. How do you look at a more efficient way to get a more carbon intensive material? Think about it like this. Right now, I am spudding 15 wells to get to an ounce of oil. Now, I have enough data to tell me that if I only poke in the right places, poke in the three right places, the, uh, my ability to strike oil is going to improve by, say, 50%. So in a way, the very energy intensive process of getting to a very energy intensive fuel is redu reduced. Instead of spudding 10, or 10 specific uh, wells, I am only drilling three because I have enough data to tell me that these are the specific geological formations that are most likely to have the treasured resource. What does it do to the comment that Renewables will eventually price out oil and gas. Does this delay that from happening? So an interesting way to look at this is that what is the underlying argument behind this principle? Like renewables will ultimately price out oil. And what we're not saying here is that that's it's going to be due to advancements in technology, right? So let me let me put it this way to you. Advancements in technology is going to benefit all sorts of industries. And that the full way to look at this is advancements in technology are also going to benefit industries such as oil and gas. It, it's going to get more efficient and it's going to cost less to um, to explore 
um, reserves of oil which were previously considered unreachable. And this is on the digital side. On the physical side as well, you have in enhanced oil recovery techniques which use um, carbon, in fact. It's, it's a form of carbon sequestration now. Halliburton has a division which looks at uh, storing and pumping carbon dioxide in, as a means to pump more oil out of uh, wells which were maybe 20 years ago considered um, unreachable. Thanks so much, Amar. Thank you. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Megan and Rick and Umar for joining me this week to talk about the news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you all for listening. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us. I always need some validation. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.